So, Mark. Yes? The last, well, like, like the third quarter of this movie. <laughs> I think that's a good way of describing it. Takes place at one of those classic movie locations. You know, you got the apartment, the volcano base, the swanky resort, and of course, the Nevada Divorce Ranch. A place that I didn't real I knew about the Nevada divorces, didn't realize the concept of the ranch was a real thing until after yeah. this movie. So, man, what if that, like, Ashton Kutcher Netflix sitcom The Ranch had been about one of these? Honestly, you could easily, easily make a weekly show set in a Reno divorce ranch in like the 30s. Like a Faulty Towers kind of thing. Yeah. Every week, new people check in. New rich women from the East check in and have to learn how to milk cows and ride a horse. Would it be set in the 1930s? I mean, I think so. I mean, it depends on how you want to do it, because you could make a really hard-cutting drama that faces the reality that most women in America faced at that time. Especially the ones getting divorced. Like, a mix of relationship stuff sometimes, and the other times it's like, City slickers level hijinks. I'm like, whoops, we can't lasso the cow. But also, this it's <laughs> also the simple life. Do you remember that? I never watched it. I wish I did. I am vaguely familiar with it. Paris Hilton and Nicole Richie having to do, honestly, I think it was fairly normal things, but just <laughs> things that Paris Hilton and Nicole Richie would not experience in their day to day life. Solid premise. I I think it. I've heard it is entertaining at the very least. So, anyway, my point is, these Nevada divorce ranches are a thing of the past. But what I want to know, Mark, is if we were going to revive them today, where do you think they should be? I think a very fun place for a divorce ranch would be to keep it as isolated as possible and put it on that, like, island that's on a lake that's on an island in a lake, <laughs> in Lake Superior, so that you're really forced to just disconnect from the world and reconnect with yourself. And also, I just like talking about the fact that there is an island. In a lake, on I an think island it's that. Yeah. I think it's that level. I mean, it is a great thing to remind everybody about. Part of my thing is, like, do you make them switch transportation every time, or can they just take, like, a seaplane from the shore of Lake Superior to the final destination. Oh, I was thinking a duck boat. So, like, they take a duck boat across Lake Superior. A horrible (laughs) idea. Then get on land and, like, walk or something, and then take a second duck boat. Exactly. Maybe they could borrow them from the Boston duck boats. Okay, actually, it's occurring to me, I was imagining, like, those swan boats, but a duck. But you mean, like, the amphibious craft. Yeah, that's what I was talking about, but the swan boat... (laughs) is another level, like, another interesting wrinkle to add to this idea. But no, I I meant the amphibious vehicles that walk you and then swim you around Boston. I'm now picturing a boat that's actually a duck with the idea of it walks you and then (laughs) swims you of just, like, a giant duck-shaped craft. It's got robot legs like in a Captain Underpants book. That's my ideal. That's the only way to access the divorce ranch. It feels good. You've got to ex- enter a world of unreality to accept the way your life is changing. Sure. <laughs> but also, it's a big boat that's shaped like a walking duck. Which you just can't beat. Um, I think for me, the divorce ranch, 
I think you want to go in like a very different direction from the Nevada isolation. You obviously can't do it just like in the middle of a city because that's just life. So what I think you need to do is anchor it near like a strange but isolated world where like it's a closed system that they're near and they can kind of like enter it and like try out new versions of themselves, but without having to like live a normal life. So this sounds like a cult. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a divorce cult that we've just invented. So I think that, I mean, you know, if it's going to be culty, maybe they should just, uh, Straight up to it. What was the name of that group with, like, the geodesic dome in the Southwest? There was a documentary about them. If you expect me to keep the name straight of every <laughs> cult that they make a documentary about in the last five years. I actually was thinking about the Branch Davidians earlier today because I was reading a newsletter about the influencers Brooklyn and Bailey and how they went to college in Waco and other notable Waco things. Okay, so this is not like Branch Davidian level. I'm thinking like, this is like Epcot, like as it was originally conceived by Walt Disney, where it's like a community in a bubble or like, or like Pleasantville. Like we build Pleasantville and then we put the divorce ranch next to it. I like the idea of making it like the village in... (laughs) Sure. The movie The Village as well, where they're forced to forget that the outside world exists. Did you ever read that book Running Out of Time? No. (laughs) It's like a middle school book about a girl who's growing up in like the Van Buren era. And then like kids are getting sick, like crap's going down. And her mom is like, my daughter, we do not live in the Van Buren era. It's like 1998. We live in like a museum, basically, where all of your parents opted in and- Kids need medicine because they're dying, so you have to go out into the late 20th century and let people know what disaster is happening here. Isn't that literally the plot of The Village? I don't know, I haven't seen The Village. I listened to the Blank Check episode about it. I haven't seen it, but that genuinely sounds like the plot of The Village. I think it has to do with the disease. It's a pretty good book. It sounds interesting. I also like the choice of Van Buren. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> uh, the only th- reason I remember it is because... The girl has, like, multiple digs in her head about, like, how her dad has been, like, hating on Martin Van Buren. I mean, he didn't even speak English as a first language. That's, that is true. So what about you? What are you feeling about all this? So as you all were talking, I realized that in pondering this question, we had not specified if it was a mixed gender divorce rant. Because in the movie, it's just women. And in my head, I don't know that it's only women but let's say like cis men probably would not have been allowed at any of the ideas that I was coming up with and then that's okay well no because I worry yeah I think this is an inclusive podcast not for murderers well not for murderers but if you look at who the two hosts of this podcast are it's clearly like very diverse inclusive podcast and so the best thing I could come up with for any divorcee is uh the divorce ranch is in Canada And once you have proven that you have gotten over your divorce, you get Canadian citizenship and therefore free healthcare. Just, you know, given that oftentimes healthcare may be tied to your spouse. So this seems only fair. All right. Yeah. I mean, can't, can't complain about that. Where in Canada? 
See, I, again, when I first started thinking about this, I was like, well, obviously it'll be on Prince Edward Island because another part of overcoming the divorce will be living out Anne of Green Gables fantasies. And then I was like, oh no, do cis men have Anne of Green Gables fantasies? I'm not sure. And that really was my sticking point where I realized that I had not been being inclusive in my conception of my divorce ranch. Uh, and I never really got past that point. But also within uh, Canada, I've only been to Toronto, Montreal, and this like glacier national park, the Canada side. So I feel like I don't have a great basis or foundation to choose the best location in Canada. But any location, I assume, would come with free healthcare. My problem with Anne of Green Gables is I have a hard time relating to anybody who doesn't want to be a redhead. <laughs> I think. In my mind, we should cut the ranch part, and by that I mean all of the divorcees should just be dumped on the island like in Survivor. <laughs> <laughs> and they are forced to make it on their own, because it teaches them self-reliance. Like in the book Hatchet. They're given one hatchet. Their plane is crashed on purpose. Did they get the crashed plane? Because there were a lot of supplies in there that he got. Yes, okay. They do get the crashed plane. They get supplies, but they mostly have a hatchet, and they have to, I don't know, solve all of life's problems in a microcosm of being stranded on an island. Look, we're coming up with a lot of good ideas today. Wow. Okay. But also, <laughs> just to make it clear, big fan of no-fault divorce, I think it's an important step that allows people to live happier and healthier lives, but more people getting dropped on islands with only hatchets, I don't know, could be good. Probably bad, though. Well, now that we have squared away, I think, a lot of important business, we should probably start talking about things about this movie besides just the existence of a divorce ranch. Because, boy, is there a lot more to it. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This, of course, is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the least important issue facing today's world. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation or if a key participant is never seen. We'll dig in and see what is there. And this week, we are joined by our good friend Rachel to talk about George Cukor's 1939 adaptation of The Women. Hello! I am so delighted to be here. Um, If you all will indulge me for just a second, I... We'll get back to my typical silly self, but wanted to be a little sincere for just a second. This is my seventh time as a guest. I have been a fan of the podcast almost since it started, which has been oh, four years now, right? Yeah, four years. And I was listening to this week's episode as I was walking to work today and honestly was getting a little emotional, which sounds silly. And I was thinking about it like I, frankly, I like movies a lot, but I feel like I'm not a movie fan on the same level as Will and Mark. So I was like, you know, why is it so special to me? And ultimately the conclusion that I came to is that um, it's because I can come to this place for magic. I come <laughs> to We Love the Love podcast to love, to cry, to, be to care, because... I need that, all of me, that indescribable feeling I get when I, cold open begins. 
and I go somewhere I've never been before. I'm gonna cancel Not this podcast. Entertained, but somehow reborn. <laughs> Dazzling podcast artwork on a tiny silver phone screen. Sound that I can feel. Somehow, a heartbreak feels good in a place like this. I. My heroes feel like the best am part going of to myself. <laughs> and stories feel perfect and powerful. Because here, they are. And so I just wanted to thank you all for, through your podcast, making movies better. I had no idea where you were going Me with that build-up. neither. Ugh. That was impressive, honestly. I want you all to know, for weeks now, I have known that I would need to have this memorized and pull it out at some point. And I've just been biding my time. And honestly, I was listening to today's or uh, this week's podcast on my way to work today, and it's the Tangerine episode, and Will made a comment about how the end of the Nicole Kidman clip at AMC Theaters is, we make movies better, and the light bulb just clicked, and I was like, oh, this is my time, because now we will forever have Mark and Will's reaction recorded to the fact that I have had this memorized just waiting for and yeah i had to tweak it a little bit to fit in um but then again will given how hard you were laughing at what i was saying maybe you don't like people telling you that your podcast is good i feel like that was very eloquent like kind praise of your podcast it's just like this is a thing that is very funny to a select group of people and bewildering to i would love to know how many of you listeners got the reference and also at what point you started to understand what was happening. <laughs> so I am um... I love imagining them shooting that. It's so strange to be like, all right, we got Nicole Kidman at an empty theater. She's wearing a like silver suit and she's just gotta like stare at a screen that may or may not have Jurassic World on it. I assume this is just what it looks like when Nicole Kidman goes to the movies. Um I will say I had memorized this previously, but knew I was going to have to say it today. So walking both to and from work, uh, I did call my sister at one point and say it for her just to practice. She got it at to love. But I also was curious because I was just walking through the streets of DC on my way to and from work reciting this aloud because I had it in my head, but I hadn't really practiced saying it before. And the entire time I was hoping that at least one person walking past me would recognize what I was saying and text their friend or go home or something and say, I just heard somebody reciting the Nicole Kidman AMC spot on yes. the street. You were practicing for an audition. So did I get the part? It's the new, the new trendy monologue. <laughs> Imagine if someone auditioned to Juilliard with that monologue. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. I did see someone on Twitter whose Halloween costume was Nicole Kidman at an AMC. I saw that too. Uh, all right. So... <laughs> I think we need to start talking about the women, though, because yes, there are a lot of them. There are so many women. So this is an adaptation of Claire Booth's Broadway play, a hit play from 1936 that was originally optioned the next year to star Claudette Colbert. It eventually got bought by MGM, which is why it is full of nearly every MGM star from the late 1930s. I do think it's important to point out that we are talking about uh, U.S. Republican Congresswoman and later Ambassador to Italy, Claire Booth. Okay, is this where I get to talk about Claire Booth loose? (laughs) 
I think we should just dive into it at the beginning and get it out of the way. Okay. So Claire Booth Luce, uh, she was born Claire Booth. She was like a child actor on Broadway. And then she like went away to like, you know, academies for girls in New York. And then she worked as a writer and an editor. She was an editor at Vanity Fair for a little while. And then, crucially, she marries Henry Luce, who is the editor and owner of Time Magazine. She later helps him develop the idea for Life Magazine. So both of those are going on. So she's a writer. She's a playwright writing stuff like The Women. As you said, Mark, in the 1940s, she got elected to the House of Representatives, where she served for two terms as a anti-Roosevelt pro-war Republican which is kind of a weird needle that she was threading. (laughs) Like, she's openly anti-Nazi. She wrote a play in 1939 that was, like, satirizing Nazis, but she thought Roosevelt was bad. (laughs) So, like, she she was a big Wilkie booster. Also, weirdly, uh, apparently very anti-British colonialism in India in the 1930s. Yes, but pro-British in general. Her whole thing is, like, she's very, like, she's very opposed to racism. And so she saw, like, the way the British treated people in India as reflective of racism. She saw Nazis as being very racist. And so, like, that's sort of her consistent through line, where she's basically like, Americans and British and the British are pretty great, except when they're being racist. Wow. Over the course of her life, she becomes increasingly conservative, a virulent anti-communist in the 1950s. She is also notable because she was basically publicly having a number of different affairs with leading Americans of the time. Uh, including Joseph Kennedy and, most fascinatingly, Roald Dahl. So this is when Roald Dahl was assigned to spy in the United States before the U.S. entered World War II, and he was allegedly ordered to seduce Claire Booth Luce since she was married to Henry Luce, so that then her being seduced, she'd be more likely to tell her husband to, like, publish stuff about how the U.S. should get in the war and support the British. Look, Time and life had a lot of circulation, but also, like, Claire Booth Luce already supported the British in the war. Like, I don't know that this was the best use of resources. Anyway, so Roald Dahl gets in bed with Claire Booth. And then, again, according to the, you know, secondhand reports on this that we have, he requested to be allowed to stop doing that because having sex with Claire Booth Luce was too physically demanding for Roald Dahl, who at the time was, like, a six-foot man in the British Air Force. Oh, My God. So he requested to be allowed to stop because the sex was too physically demanding and was told no. Honestly, based off of this play slash movie, that tracks. Yeah. It was funny. Like, that is strikingly similar to what happens with Peter Capaldi in Dangerous Liaisons. Except in that, it's that the sex is bad, so he wants to stop. Right. Yeah, I think too physically demanding is much more interesting than bad. Uh, Honestly. also the real life one. Missed opportunity for Dangerous Liaisons. Wow. What an interesting woman. She is a fascinating figure. Because, and then, like, there's also, like, her whole engagement with gender where, like, she's invited to co-sponsor one of the earliest versions of the Equal Rights Amendment and never did and claimed her invitation was lost in the mail. She, like, gave speeches through most of her life about, like, yeah, really what women want are babies and security. And as long as a man can do that, they're good. And so, like, she's this, like, very strange figure. You have to be kind of weird to get a play like this. Oh, in the 60s, she and her husband funded expeditions to take down Castro that were even more poorly planned than Bay of Pigs. It was just Cuban expatriates leaving Florida on speedboats. (laughs) What a waste of money. 
So anyway, uh, in 1936, she writes this play. It's a huge hit on Broadway. As the movie tells us, it ran for 666 performances. Iconic. I can't wait to talk about the opening credits of this movie. Which were themselves a source of tension on set, because you've got, in your cast, three stars known for having a certain degree of ego. Uh, Norma Shearer, Joan Crawford, and Rosalind Russell. Actually, Rosalind Russell called in sick for several days until Norma Shearer agreed to joint billing, because Shearer was initially billed first. Mark, isn't Rosalind Russell your ancestor? She is my great-grandmother's cousin. And also, so, kind of my favorite part of this movie. <laughs> I am just curious whether this type of pettiness runs in your family at all. <sighs> Not to this extent, but let's be real. Everyone's family is petty in their own way. Follow-up question. Is she on the same side of the family as Cinderella? No, that's my dad's side of the family. Cinderella and Thomas Jefferson were shavers. <laughs> but we have talked about Rosalind Russell's pettiness before because. When she was going out for His Girl Friday, she, like, read in the newspaper that, like, ah, like, everybody's turned them down, so now they're stuck with Rosalind Russell. So then she went swimming and showed up, like, fully wet to her audition. I love her. (laughs) I feel like she's not acting that hard as Sylvia in this movie. No, it feels like she's getting to let loose in a way that she really enjoys. Yeah. I didn't realize how... I guess, I mean, I haven't seen her in too many movies, and it's probably more in, like, a meme, but I didn't realize how much of a physical comedian she was. She's great! Her posture and everything. Does she ever wear one of those plastic hats? I don't know. I thought she did, but Rachel is shaking her head now. I mean, I could be wrong. To be fair, as close of attention as I tried to pay to all of the different women's fashion... To some extent, it is a black and white movie, and a lot of the women look the same in my memory, even if I can remember specific plot points with each of them. So maybe she did. There are 130 speaking roles in this movie, and I am not great at films where there are, like, five in terms of remembering (laughs) character names. So I will do my best. We should note, of course, one of the central ideas behind the play and then the movie is that every one of those speaking roles in fact every person on screen is a woman and in fact not just every person every animal on screen is also female there is like one man and it's a picture of douglas fairbanks jr on the back of a gossip magazine but like so like in that first scene when you see everybody going to the spa you know the spa that has a dog check for all the women to check their dogs when they go in (laughs) all those dogs are female that scene Things have not changed that much. Do you have a spa with a dog check? I could easily, easily imagine a spa like that in New York or Beverly Hills that would have a place for you to drop off your tiny little dog that you bring everywhere. Yeah, that that seems plausible. I mean, it's like the kids drop off at Ikea. (laughs) All right. So I think none of us had seen this movie before, right? No, I hadn't even, I had not heard of it. Yep, same. I knew of it as the first major movie to have a 100% female cast. I mean, it's probably one of the only ones at this point, still. There's, like, this and remakes of the women. Actually, not even all of them. Like, there's the remake in 2008 that is all-female, but some of the other ones through the years included some men. I do think of this movie in my head sometimes as the regular-sized women to differentiate it from little women. And I just think about regular size Rudy from Bob's Burgers because all of the women 
are regular sized. They Just are look regular at sized. I'll give you that. So, Rachel, did you have any like initial thoughts in general on the movie? I really enjoyed it, but I will say in watching it, there have been several movies that I've watched recently that were adapted from plays. And in most cases, I have finished the movie saying to myself, this was a good movie and it feels like it probably is a great play. And I kind of felt that way with this one. Yeah, I think that's fair. Especially, I mean, I think it is kind of exciting every time the movie finds another way to do scenes without any of the relevant men being involved. Like the point where Mary is having the fight with her husband and we get the whole thing through the lens of the maid and the cook and the maid is like relaying all the details of it and acting it out, which is like a very fun scene. And it's like, oh, they've like found another way to get this crucial plot point across without showing the man. It does feel like that would probably have like a higher energy, a greater intensity on stage where you're in the room with them. We were about 20 minutes in and Nick just go looks up from his phone and goes, ah, this was a play. And it was like <laughs> everything had clicked for him in that moment. This has the laugh a minute joke pacing of a Marx Brothers movies for a lot of it. I thought of that, especially at the beginning. It is relentless. It's hard to catch every joke. I definitely missed at least 10% just through sheer speed oh, yeah. alone. Yeah, it's an impressive screenplay. A lot of it is Claire Booth's. Uh, the adaptation is done by Anita Luce and Jane Murphan, who have long careers with MGM. According to reviews from the time, a decent amount of the difference is adding in the fashion show, the Technicolor sequence, and cutting out unspecified lines that would not pass the production code snuff, and I couldn't find out what they were. I mean, it is notable. The movie never explicitly or even that obliquely references sex. And I could imagine some stuff related to that got removed. I Yeah, I would imagine Crystal says more in the play to imply the relationship than she could get away with in the production code era. I know that even the play was written post-code, but imagine the pre-code version of this. So we mentioned that it exclusively stars women. It's written by women. A number of the other creative roles are done by men. It's directed by George Kukor, who we talked about for Gaslight. And he was able to take this job because it was going into production right around the time that he got fired from Gone with the Wind. So that worked out well enough for him, I suppose. It is not a surprise that of all the men in Hollywood that would direct the women, it is George Kukor. Yeah, I mean, he directed a lot of movies about women. I mean, and hearing the way the women talk about him, like Vivian Lee, after he left, would still get her direction from him because he actually paid attention to her as an actress and not as a prop, like in the SNL <laughs> actresses roundtable. Um, one of the other really interesting sort of creatives on this movie is the production designer, who's Cedric Gibbons, who is the designer of the Oscar statue. Yeah, apparently he was a big deal in the, like, art deco, art modern move movement, which you can see in the statue. Yes, for sure. I do think we also need to point out Adrian himself of Gowns by Adrian. Yeah, did a lot of great work on this movie. The costumes in this movie 
were stunning. 39 was a big year for him because he also did Wizard of Oz. Yeah. I gotta say, speaking of the gowns, it's crazy to me. George Kukor told TCM years later that if he could, he would take out the fashion show. Ridiculous And a bunch of the critics at the time, a bunch of the critics at the time were like, good movie, but what the heck is up with this fashion show? I read the New York Times review and he was like, the women seemed to like it, but it clearly is adding nothing to the movie. And I'm like, you're a dummy. It's great. Shut up. I loved it. It's so good. It's so good. And it's the same year as The Wizard of Oz when you're thinking about, like, switching between colors. One interesting thing is it took Nick about, like, three minutes before he realized that it had switched to color, which I found interesting. Yeah. Because it's not like he was just staring at his phone, because how could you? Because it's a fashion show with a mix of incredible and incredibly interesting designs. I like that it's a double layer fashion show. Like, if you're an actual woman in the audience there, then there is a screen and you watch fashion show on the screen. And then, like, the first several rows of the audience are on a raised platform and are also part of the fashion show. And so, like, after the video part ends, then all those women get up and, like, do a runway walk. It's almost like having an island in a lake that is on an (laughs) island in a lake. Can you imagine shopping like that? It's wild. It's a step crazier than, like, I've bought clothes off a mannequin before, but that's just buying clothes off the person. But that said, I kind of like that in buying, I guess if you shop online, you get this, but you're seeing what these clothes look like on an actual person in front of you and how they move and all of that. I think, you know, I did not hate the idea of shopping like this because then you still can try them on yourself too. Sure. Yeah. It's just chaos. (laughs) It was all around chaotic because everyone is just grabbing the one version of it that they have. That's the crazy part about it. Like, there is just the one, so there's the competition for it. Um, The movie, you know, we're going to talk about the a lot of the details of the women when we talk about the romance. It was a pretty decent hit. Um, It didn't make a ton of money, but it, it did well at the box office. And it's also had some staying power. Uh, Jack Benny did a radio parody of the whole thing uh, starring men that fall, like November of 1939. And there's been remakes in 1956 and 2008. In 1960, MGM fully cast an all-male remake called Gentleman's Club starring Jeffrey Hunter, Robert Wagner, James Garner, Jimmy Stewart, Claire Booth's buddy Ronald Reagan. Like they fully cast everybody. They had a script and then it didn't go. And I could not figure out why. What would it be a about like it's like a dude finds out his wife is cheating on him i feel like that's a very different world because i mean a different story because the debate is less there for a man in society at that time yes absolutely and it's a little too early to be like really digging into like the women's liberation angle of it right from a man's man's perspective but yeah it's it's the women there's a lot of them it's a pretty good time it's very fun (laughs) I enjoyed it. Yeah, it's a really good movie. But again, I think it's probably a great play. Yeah, I would love to see this as a play. They did a revival on Broadway in like 2001 starring Cynthia Nixon as Mary. Hmm. It feels like the kind of thing we could put on like every 20 years or so. Yeah. So we're coming up soon. We're right for it. Oh, yeah. Who would you cast as Mary? Oh, who do you cast as Mary today? Yeah. 
I don't know. I feel like that age is like right in the sweet spot of like people who have been served very poorly by the death of the rom-com. Yeah. Like we have a pretty solid crew of younger stars coming up in the like Sersha to Zendaya age bracket, but they're a little too young for it. And then you have like the last generation that got to star in rom-coms. And I feel like the people in between there, you know, you're not thinking of people who like got full stardom in the same way that like when they do the 2008 remake of the women and Meg Ryan is the lead, we don't have people on that same level because those kinds of movies don't exist. I think probably in this case, you have to pull from television. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I'm trying to remember her name. Wendy Malick could be very interesting because she has the comedy chops, but also a very fun voice to listen to. Um, can I just call out Caitlin Olsen for Sylvia Fowler? <laughs> oh my god. The problem with Caitlin Olsen is it's hard to picture her as in that circle to begin with. <laughs> I mean, that's true. Like, Sylvia Fowler is very much of the upper crust. She's just also terrible. Right, see, I like leaning into the terrible. Otherwise, like, sure, like, you can cast Catherine Hahn, and, like, she'll be great at it. Yeah. Oh, I think Catherine Hahn... I, honestly, I think we need a Cher doing all the parts of West Side Story with Catherine Hahn as all of the women in The Women. I think, except maybe you cast, um... What, what's the woman, the Countess? Countess DeLave? Yeah. Holly Hunter. I imagine Holly Hunter saying, L'amour, l'amour. Yeah, it'd be great. <laughs> I want her going full Raising Arizona, but as an older woman. Yes. I think she could pull off the terrible fake French accent, too. No, I want her to just use her natural accent, but still say all of the French words. So it's like, l'amour, l'amour. You know what? You're right. That's the move. Um... I just looked. The 2001 revival had Jennifer Coolidge as Edith, who is Mrs. Yes. Potter. I did see that. Incredible. Anyway, I think at this point we should probably talk about the romance of the women. Yes. So every week we break down the romantic plotline of a movie into five points to help us walk through everything we have to say. So Rachel, as our guest and as our woman expert <laughs> on this episode, it's going to be your job to walk us through the women's romance. Sure, happy to do it. Uh, so point one is what really kicks off all of the drama that happens in the story and happens at the very beginning of the movie. We discover that Mrs. Fowler's manicurist has recently gotten this new color in jungle red that everybody wants. And when people come in to get their nails painted jungle red, Mrs. Fowler is talking about how Stephen Haynes is having, they never say affair, but having some sort of relationship. Spending time. Spending time with a perfume saleswoman named Crystal. You brought up the Jungle Red, and I was like, oh, it's a shame that we don't get to see Jungle Red, because it sounds so vivid. And then I was about to say, like, 
Maybe they should have, like, just colored in the jungle red so we could see who had it. And then I realized that's the Schindler's List thing. It's black and white with just a little bit of red. (laughs) I mean, this movie did come out a little earlier. Right, but I saw Schindler's List before I had that idea. That is true. One of my favorite moments, and one thing that really sold me on this movie, is when Sylvia finds out about Mary's husband cheating on her, and she runs to the phone to talk to Edith they're talking like oh it's such a shame i feel so bad for her and the smiles of glee on their faces as they're sharing this gossip tell you everything you need to know yeah claire booth saw the play as a satire of like high society women and at one point said that the person she sympathized with most was crystal like the younger lower class woman who thought she had a shot at a better life You know what this reminds me of? There is this series of books for, say, like, adolescent girls called The Click. I think I watched this movie. You did. Um, Several of us made Will watch The Click movie, and it was hilarious. And you know what, actually? It is now occurring to me that some stuff I kept waiting to be referenced in season two of The Babysitter's Club. And I was like, wow, in retrospect, it feels like those characters were really mean in the first season. Was in fact details from the movie The Click. There's a new blonde girl in both. Like, I can only keep track of so much. Anyway, uh, The Click was written by this woman who had been an editor, I believe at Teen Vogue. Maybe it was Teen People. And wrote the first book as a satire about the kinds of rich little Manhattan girls that she was encountering. And the one character who moves to, they're in Westchester, New York, not Manhattan, but moves to Westchester was supposed to be the sympathetic character. But then this entire generation of preteen girls really glommed onto the people who were supposed to be terrible. So then over the course of the series, she recognized this and it became a little bit less satire, I think, but also the one girl who's supposed to be kind of the voice of reason and also the girl that the audience is supposed to identify with just gets worse and worse over the course (laughs) of the books because the author was recognizing like everybody wants to be one of the girls in the clique, not this sympathetic character. So speaking of uh, fun people whom we should not want to be, I just want to mention that Sylvia Fowler enters this movie wearing a shirt that has three giant eyeballs on it. I love that outfit. You know, the costumes in this movie, the gowns by Adrian are pretty great. They're so good. And sometimes women are wearing transparent plastic hats. Wow. So yeah, so I think our big inciting incident is the word from the manicurist that Stephen Fowler is spending time with another woman. Stephen Haynes. Stephen Haynes, excuse me. And word spreads rapidly. You you mentioned the phone call culminating in this like lunch, which I think is at Mary's house, where everybody in the room knows that her husband is cheating on her and like can't wait to talk about it the minute she leaves the room. But they're also like, oh, obviously we have to keep it from Mary because it would be too much for her because she is like passionately in love with her husband. You know, we see her spending time with their daughter and she's talking about like how excited she is to go on vacation with Steven. Yeah, they're going to go hunting and fishing and just be super in love as they are still super in love 10 years into their marriage. And Mary does seem to be the like, not the queen bee, but the most, you know, upstanding of the clique yes 
So everyone's kind of excited to tear her down and her perfect life. And then at the point that the audience knows and everybody else knows that Stephen is cheating on Mary, but Mary doesn't yet know it. Uh, Will was saying she's so excited for this trip. He calls her and cancels the trip. And we've also seen her getting really excited about him coming home for dinner and talking to the cook about, oh, we're going to make this nice meal. And he cancels dinner. So the audience knows it's so that he can spend time with Crystal. But Mary thinks he's just being distant for no reason. He's working late all the time. I gotta say, I think Steven is bad at infidelity. Like, if you're gonna do this but stay married, you can't come home super late every night. Which is apparently what he's been doing. And you should inform her. You should tell Crystal where your wife shops and to avoid ending up at the same place. Yeah. He is bad at it. Just like, he's not subtle. Yeah, it's honestly remarkable. And I guess just a testament to like, her rose-tinted love of him that she has failed to pick up on this. That should be obvious to everybody. Like, I'm sure the household staff has picked up on it. Well, she does find out in point two at this luncheon, all these women were talking about their jungle red nails. So Mary goes to the manicurist in order to get jungle red nails and mentions that she's Mrs. Fowler's friend. And the manicurist immediately says, oh, I know what Mrs. Fowler's friends come here for and pulls out the jungle red nail polish and also shares all of this gossip because Sylvia has just sent all her friends here to hear the full gossip from the manicurist. And it's just so heartbreaking to watch Mary's face as she hears all of this. And at the very end, the manicurist asks her name and she says, oh, I'm Mrs. Stephen Haynes. And the manicurist's face just falls and she says, oh, I'm so sorry. Can I do anything for you? And Mary says, yeah, stop telling everybody this. A fair ask. Oh, here's this new one, Summer Rain. That's the kind Mary Haynes is so keen about. Oh, yes, that's it. A friend of ours. Mrs. Stephen Haynes simply dotes on this. Really? Uh, Her husband picked it out for her. Perhaps you sold it to him. Stephen Haynes, the engineer. Oh, I'm afraid I don't remember. You see, we have so many men come in here. Uh, Awfully good-looking, tall, fair, distinguished. I'm sure you wouldn't overlook him. I'm sorry, but when one's mind is on one's own business. Of course, of course. And as you say, you have so many men. I was surprised in this movie by, like, how much the affairs of this group are, like, news that, like, people want to share, like, gossip that people want to share. Look, we don't know what any of their husbands really do, but, like, when Mary and Stephen are getting their divorce, it is front-page news in at least one newspaper. I assume that's, like, the society pages, specifically, or, you know, a gossip column. It is interesting that all it takes to be a celebrity in this world is money. I think... One of the interesting things to me is after Mary finds out, she, like, calls in her mother for advice. And her mom is basically just going on, like, look, you know, every once in a while a man feels like he needs something new. And that's just what you got to put up with. Like, you know, my husband cheated on me years ago and, and I just stayed silent and put up with it. That's just what you should do, too. Yeah, her mom says, this is a direct quote, don't forget it's being together at the end that really matters. That's, I think she's hinting that Mary should murder him. Now that... This is an anti-murder podcast, though. Would and I be think a this twist. Movie, so, somehow, um, when 
Claire Booth was writing the play, she knew that it would become a movie that would then one day be covered on this anti-murder podcast. So she wanted to make sure it would be in the clear. Look, if 1930s Claire Booth wanted to come on our podcast, I would have her in a heartbeat. She is someone I would love to talk to. So yeah, so her mom gives her this advice that basically do nothing. And Mary's like, no, like, it is the 1930s. I don't have to live like women used to live. Like, I entered this marriage as an equal partner and doggone it, it's gonna stay that way. I love every time whenever it's like women are equal now in movies from basically, honestly, always because society has never actually achieved that equality. It's very funny. But back before the concept of women's lib even started in the 30s for her to be like, it's the 30s, mom. We're all so advanced now. And the war hasn't even started, which was a big kick towards women equality for, you know, a solid five years. There's a certain extent to which I'm like, how much does Claire Booth want us to laugh at that line? Because she is the woman who later in life was like, no, women just want to like have somebody who can provide for them and like stay home and have babies. Like, is that supposed to be a point of ridicule in that direction? I think Claire Booth doesn't know herself. Another thing I would question is, does Claire Booth see having a man who can provide for you and having babies as meaning you're not in an equal partnership? I think probably no. Yeah, because I I mean, she certainly was in a quite influential partnership with Henry Luce. So another thing that happens around this time is we encounter Crystal for the first time at the perfume store and she's bragging about this, never says the word, but boyfriend she has, this man she's been seeing. And Stephen calls to try to cancel on her because Mary was so upset that he wasn't coming home for dinner. And Crystal manipulates him into changing his mind and not cancel. Again, he is very much an equal player in all of this, but it does feel like she is a bit manipulative in convincing him not to go home to Mary. Crystal, by the way, is played by Joan Crawford going full Joan Crawford. Oh my God. She is going at it in this movie. She's pulled out all the stops. It's great. Everything she looks at, it looks like she is trying to seduce. That is a great description. Except for little Mary, who you could just feel the contempt (laughs) pouring (laughs) off of her body. She is like, it is even greater than Meredith in the parent trap. It is. She is. Complete disinterest. See, the thing with her is it goes from disinterest to like active dislike very early on. Oh, she's so good in this. But that is just Mary's friends meeting with Crystal. Uh, I think it's point three is where well, the two of them meet. Right? Uh, we did no, that was um Stephen calling Crystal, and then Sylvia and Edith go to the store to try to meet Crystal, and they do, and it is exceedingly awkward. Yeah, because like they're clearly like pumping her, trying to get her to say like I'm banging Stephen Hayes, and she's just like not willing to do it and they're like i bet you pick up a lot of men here and she's like the men who come here are married like they're not subtle at all about it no and she is very good at shutting them down but then as you were saying will mary does encounter crystal at this fashion show they are both there and i think they maybe want to try on the same garment yeah they're going for the same thing at this 
fashion show turned like shopping opportunity with a full bar, we should mention. You've been seeing my daughter. That's what I've come in here to tell you. I won't have you coming near my daughter. Well, you don't have to get hysterical about her. What do I care about your daughter? I'm sick of hearing about her. You won't have to hear about her anymore because you and my husband aren't going on seeing each other. That's rather up to Stephen, don't you think? Completely. So you better start making other plans, Miss Allen. Listen, I'm taking my marching orders from Stephen. He seems to be satisfied with this arrangement. So don't force any issues unless you want to cause plenty of trouble. Something else we haven't mentioned is that Mary and her mother go to Bermuda. It's supposed to be for a month, and I think this is kind of an absence-makes-the-heart-grow-fonder attempt. But Sylvia and Edith call Mary and tell her, I think they tell her they've met Crystal. I'm not positive. They say something that convinces Mary that she should hightail it back home two weeks early, which her mother is not pleased about. Yeah. But so they have this encounter, and... It's, like, quite tense, and Mary tries basically making her mom's argument to Crystal, where she's like, look, like, you know, my husband may spend some time with you, but, like, I'm the one he's with at the end of the day. Like, you're just some fling that he'll get over. And Crystal is like, heck no, uh, he's gonna leave you, because I'm a lot more fun, and you're gonna, like, shrivel up alone. Uh, she's so Joan Crawford. So the next piece of this, which I don't think is, like, totally included in the points is the big fight scene, which I loved. I mentioned it earlier. It's entirely relayed from a maid who spied on the fight between Mary and Stephen, explaining it to the cook, because we cannot see Stephen, given the central conceit of the movie. And the maid's having a lot of fun. She's, like, acting out different parts of it and, like, doing some voices and explaining you know, the back and forth in all this fight, where Mary's accusing Stephen, Stephen tries denying it, the whole, you know, you know what the fight is going to be. I loved that plot device. Of using it's, it's a lot of fun. And also, given the fact that, like, it is kind of obvious what the fight would be. Like, we wouldn't get a lot that's very interesting out of watching this very predictable fight take place. And instead, we have this, this very different way of getting that emotion and characterization through. So then, after the fight, we see Mary talking to her daughter, little Mary, about the divorce that's happening and she's packing up her things and she's getting ready to leave for the divorce ranch in Reno. Yeah, little Mary doesn't know what divorce is. Uh, no, I guess she does because she says a bunch of her friend's parents are divorced. But like she has no concept, it seems, that her parents are splitting up. It was front page news. Where's little Mary been? Maybe she doesn't know how to read. How common was divorce at this time i have no idea the movie makes it seem very common i mean common enough that the divorce ranches existed yeah let's see if i can find the divorce rate in 1939 i mean you have to be rich it seems because otherwise how do you afford to go to reno for six weeks but also like get a divorce and then live alone or you know live alone with children and dealing with all that So while you keep looking into that, I think that takes us to point number four. Well, yeah, point number four. So she's left her husband. She's going to Reno and on her way. And then once she gets there, she meets all of these other characters who are also at the divorce. Just a great crew. Uh, This sweet little thing's getting her first divorce, too. She's a very dear friend of mine. Oh, what'd you say your name was, darling? Miriam Aaron. This is Mrs. Haynes. (laughs) 
You know, yanked the scalp off that Allen woman in the fitting room. <laughs> oh, yeah, good for you. I was afraid you were a wet firecracker. <laughs> Shay, hello. <laughs> Cheer up, Sherry. Wait till you've lost as many husbands as I have. <gasps> married, divorced, married, divorced. Oh, l'amour, l'amour. That's French for love. Oui, but oui. where love leads, I always follow. <laughs> Paulette Godard shows up, like, they're all meeting on a train, and she, like, shows up with like a glass of champagne and a wink and she's like hi i'm paulette godard i'm banging rosalind russell's husband this is great uh an icon we also have mary boland as the countess who we were discussing earlier who's just this like nice old lady who's here for like her fifth time around or something she gets together with a dude a cowboy she believes yes. in l'amour that's the thing she believes in love so much she keeps trying she even gives up her title for this cowboy, which we'll get into a little more in point five. Oh, good. But yeah, so also at the divorce ranch is, I'd say of all of Mary's friends that we've seen over the course of the movie, the nicest one of them all, who might be named Peggy? Peggy Day, yes. Olivia yeah. de Havilland's younger sister. Joan Fontaine. Joan Fontaine. One of the only siblings to ever of both one lead actor. Like, or a lead actor or actress. Because she and her sister That's have cool. both won it. That's fascinating. Um, but yeah, so Peggy is also there. And she does not really want to be there. But Sylvia has convinced her that she needs to leave her husband. Uh, update. By 1939, it was 1.9 divorces per 1,000 people. Okay. So not insignificant. Yes, but still noticeable. Yeah, but especially if you think about how concentrated those must have been among a particular demographic. Also, apparently Americans were, like, known for having easier time getting divorces since the 1800s. Huh, that's interesting. Um, Of course, you know, of Mary's friends, Sylvia will be following when she finds out that her husband is cheating on her and is quite surprised to discover <laughs> the person he's cheating with also at this ranch and when she bit paulette godard in the arm there's not makeup involved in that that is a bite oh god no that is inappropriate set behavior yeah rosalind russell oh my god <laughs> rachel is speechless ew so the other big development that happens here is Mary stays long enough to get her divorce finalized, and, like, the day that it's getting finalized, she has a phone call with her husband, Stephen, and you can tell that she's kind of thinking, like, oh, maybe, like, Stephen is, like, done with Crystal and, like, ready to take me back, and, like, I can just pretend this Reno divorce never happened, but instead, he is called to be like, hey, you you got that divorce, right? And she's, and she's like, yes, but, like, you know, it's the two of us on the phone kind of thing, and he's like, okay, good, because I got married to Crystal this afternoon. He was cutting it close to being a bigamist. Yeah. He was, like, ready to jump to the next thing. But, I mean, the reason she was thinking that is because she had just gotten a talk from Miriam, Paulette Goddard, who ends up with Sylvia's husband saying, like, you're a coward for giving up, and basically women should stay with their cheating husbands. There it is again. And I think that takes us to our last point. Yeah, so then the movie jumps forward two years. Little Mary still looks exactly the same, don't worry. (laughs) It's the greatest showman children situation. (laughs) Exactly. So starting out two years later, we see Crystal in the bath. and Amazing. It is the most decadent bath I have ever seen. It's on one of the posters. Mark, I'm sending it to you. It is peak 
Joan Crawford. The bathtub scene? Oh my god. Whew, the way people barge in and out, you'd think it was Grand Central Station. What? <laughs> Maybe it's a good thing you're going to coast tomorrow. Well, it's getting to be too risky. Say, listen. I've worked too hard to land this meal ticket to make any false moves now. Romance? Listen, peace is a whole lot more to me than any romance. They're not gonna get me out on that limb again, ever. It's so good. She's just like lounging in there, talking on the phone. She gets mad at little Mary for like daring to walk in. She's talking on the phone with like her current cheaty. Like, because now she's cheating on Steven. There's a lot of people that do just barge into her bathtub, I will say. Yeah, I feel like she's probably been in there for a long time. So, like, if you're going to talk to her, you got to do it. Oh, I never thought that that weird outfit that Sylvia was wearing would be green. <laughs> yeah, I will definitely share this poster on social media because it is great and weird. I think we need to bring back shoulder pads in robes. So, anyway, uh, Rachel, what else is going on here in our time jump? So, Crystal hates little Mary, as we've previously discussed. Also, she is cheating, and Sylvia discovers it when she comes into the bathroom to talk with Crystal while she's in the bath. It seems like Sylvia and Crystal have gotten pretty close in the last two years. Yes. Which is interesting to me, because given previous things we've seen of Sylvia's character, I would think that she would very much want Crystal to know that because you are not part of society, you are not one of us, even if you have married into this situation. But that's not what happens. Well, it's, that's a good point. it's to get revenge on Mary, who she blames for her divorce. Sure. Okay. That, that does make sense. So Sylvia discovers that she's cheating because Crystal has had a private phone line put into the bathroom so that she can call her lover while she is in the bath. That's a cheater's move. Yes. And uh, little Mary previously heard her talking with the lover, but didn't know who it was. Sylvia figures out that it is the cowboy that the countess is now married to. And he is now a radio personality. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Because then like, when Crystal is revealed, I had forgotten about this. Crystal's like, it doesn't matter if Steven divorces me. I'm going to be with the cowboy. And like, he's a star, so I'll be good. And then Sylvia's like, no, actually, he's terrible at the radio. And the only reason he's allowed to be on is because the Countess owns the station. Yes, which we'll get to in just a second. But um, Mary is having, I don't know, maybe it's a birthday party or something. She has several friends over and those friends try to convince her to come out to the nightclub with them. And she says, oh, no, that's okay. I don't really want to go. And she knows that Crystal will be there. But then little Mary tells her that Stephen is just miserable. He does not love Crystal. He is having a terrible time. And also she overheard Crystal saying these lovey-dovey things to somebody else she doesn't know who. And Mary says, you know what? Never mind. I'm going to the nightclub. And I just love this line. Mary's mom says, what are you talking about? What are you doing? And Mary says, I have had two years to grow claws and they're jungle red. That's great. So this brings us to the nightclub. And I have to ask, is all of this space that they're hanging out in part of the bathroom? Yeah, it is. 
That is much more luxurious than the bathroom you'll find in a nightclub today. It's the decadence of high society, Mark. But also, I will say, from most of my experiences, ladies' rooms typically are not necessarily this level, but typically much nicer than men's rooms. At one of my old jobs, the ladies' restroom had a little sitting room with, like, a couch and that's the joke that middle school boys tell it's true no 100 no i wouldn't say in middle schools it's not like this but in non-school situations not at all uncommon for there to be a couch in the ladies that's crazy you really didn't know this no oh yeah it's it's a thing i would offer to take pictures for you but i think it would be weird to take pictures in a bathroom that's crazy So yeah, honestly, when I saw this, I was like, "Uh uh-huh, this is kind of a big bathroom, but not out of the realm of possibility. (laughs) I can't believe this revelation. All right, so ultimately, Crystal winds up getting the short end of all this. Yeah, so um, Mary fishes out of Sylvia, who Crystal is having the affair with, and then tells the Countess. And Crystal says, oh, well, that's okay, because we can just be together. And the Countess said, this is when it's revealed, no, no. The Countess is where all of his money is coming from. So Crystal is headed back to the shop or wherever. And it ends with Mary walking arms literally outstretched out the door to where we've been told Stephen is waiting for her. And she's like coming at the audience, like opening her arms to all of us. I do want to point out that Joan Crawford leaving I just love that she delivers the line where she's just like, well, you win some, you lose some. Goodbye for now. While also seemingly trying to seduce Mary. Yeah, and like clearly also trying to like will the women to Crystal's revenge into existence. Oh, also (laughs) Mary tells the whole story to Hedda Hopper herself. Who plays the gossip columnist. Yeah. It's so funny to me that Hedda Hopper is just like playing herself in this movie. All right. So I know we have a a hard deadline coming up. So we got to run through these questions kind of quickly. Rachel, do you find the romance of the women believable? Uh, For the most part. I think it is more believable than unbelievable. Oh, yeah. I definitely think that's true. I think most. I think it's actually fairly believable. Even her getting back with him at the end. Yeah. I don't think she should do it, but I believe it. Yeah, that's my position. So every week we rate a movie's believability on a scale of 1 to 10. Rachel, where would you rate this? Ugh, I was hoping I wouldn't have to go first so I could just go along. Bad news, you're the guest, so you answer the question first. (laughs) Um, I probably would give it... They have to be integers, right? You won't let me do a half? No, you can do a half. Oh, I would give it, I think, a seven and a half in that case. Okay. I'm going an eight. I was also going to do an eight. Oh, no, I was going <laughs> to say eight, and then I was worried that that would be too high. You have to be <laughs> confident in your rankings. Commit to Here's your beliefs. Thing. No gaming the rankings. This is science. <laughs> do you think Mary or Steven is dateable? Um, I don't think Steven is dateable. I no. also don't think Steven has a backbone. Mary, I have some concerns with, among other things. I would not trust her to advocate for herself in our relationship, which I think can, you know, lead to problems. But I would be willing to give it a shot if she would be willing to go to both individual and couples therapy. Okay. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, Steven's a hard no. I also think I am, like, kind of a soft no on Mary. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's where I'm at, too. So, Rachel, if you did have to pick one person to date from amongst the women, who would you choose? I think that the answer here is so obvious. Uh, when Mary is packing up her things and getting ready to get divorced, Stephen's secretary comes in to give her some papers to sign and oh, brings yeah. with her oh, wait. <laughs> a notary to notarize Mary's signature. And the notary is you know, very professional, does her job well, but is also really nice to Mary. Says, you know, I'm sorry this is happening. And I definitely would pick her. I was going to go with Jane, who is the maid who spies on the fight. She seems fun. I liked what she was serving up. I don't know if I could keep up with her, but I loved Miriam, the showgirl played by Paulette Goddard. Because she's newly single. Newly single. She's just there. Yes, she stole Sylvia's husband. But if there's one marriage that probably the husband... (laughs) may have been in the right for wanting the divorce, it would be that one, because Sylvia is terrible. Now, Rachel, do you think that Mary and Stephen, having reunited, will stay together? I do. Among other things, I think just the inertia of having gotten back together, even if they reach a point where they are not satisfied, Stephen has been married to Crystal for a couple of years, so he knows that Mary is a better option than what could be out there and i think mary probably to some extent will talk herself into her mom's advice that what matters is being together at the end and so even if she is also kind of unsatisfied she won't have really the willpower to leave again i also think she'll have a certain pride in having one over Crystal that will keep her in longer than she might otherwise. All right. So last question. Many of the movies we cover on this podcast are adapted into Broadway musicals. Rachel, should they make a musical of the women? The women, the musical. I'm going to say no. Something that I really liked about this movie was the way that, you know, there was a lot of comedy, like you said, the joke per minute rate was very high but at the same time there was something that felt very real to me about it and I think by necessity a musical is slightly suspending reality and I think that this story is more effective if it is a more entertaining version of reality rather than a suspended reality. Yeah, I think it's just hard to hit the jokes-per-minute ratio of this script in a musical. Well, if you wanted to know, we could find out. The Women has never been adapted to a Broadway musical, but it has been adapted into a film musical. Mm. In 1956, it was called The Opposite Sex, and it had basically the same premise. Notably, The Opposite Sex has men in it, because Hmm. the people behind it thought that it was too contrived to constantly be talking about love and not be able to see it. So, I don't know. So they just kind of missed the point of the movie. It does seem that way. Yeah. Okay. I am not very interested. Will, do you think it should have been made into a musical? No, I think that the the wordplay of this movie is what makes it work. And 
once you try putting that into song, you're just doing a different thing. Like, you can have fun wordplay and music, but that's something else. Yeah. It's like, there's not really a Marx Brothers musical. Yeah, those movies have music, but that is, like, the least of their concerns. Right. Now, speaking of doing something different, next week, we are getting into our Christmas season with the first ever scripted Christmas movie produced by the Food Network, Candy Coated Christmas. I know nothing about this, and I'm kind of dreading it, and I don't know if I'm emotionally prepared for Christmas yet, because- the time has come, Mark. The movies are just so emotionally taxing based off of the titles <laughs> alone this year. Well, uh, I guess we're going to find out how it is. You can all stream Candy Coated Christmas on Discovery Plus if that's a thing you want to do. And we'll see you here next week. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love Love Pod. And you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts to help other people find the show. All right, last question, Rachel. What is the best piece of dating advice you got from this movie? Wear fabulous outfits. Like, with big eyeballs on them? Hey, all of the women in this movie are married at some point, be it happily (laughs) or not. And every one of them... Actually, I guess maybe this isn't dating advice. This must just be life advice. Because every woman is immaculately dressed at all times, no matter her relationship status. So, uh, can I substitute life advice for dating advice in this case? Sure. My advice because it seems to work at least once for Joan Crawford, try to seduce everyone and everything, and eventually (laughs) you'll strike gold. Something will hit. I mean, look, this is awkward. Like, this isn't advice that I think people should take, but I think the advice that the movie offers is that if you want to cheat, be smart about it. Joan Crawford got a lot further with having a private phone line than Stephen did with just calling in... Late work every night. You gotta be smart about this. (laughs) There you go. That's the end of the show. Until next time, I'm Gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about. Bye. 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 Yeah.